Welcome to Detectives by the Decade. This is the podcast that looks at the detectives, the scientists, and the cases that gave us forensics as we know it today. I'm Christy Baxter, and welcome to Episode 7, Free and Clear. I'm going to be telling you two tales of forensics that have a common thread. Well, a few common threads actually involved. We are going to start with the story of Dr. Samuel Jackson. T.R. Beck, an American physician who specialized in medical jurisprudence, and wrote the first American book on forensic medicine to be deemed significant, said in 1828. Pressed by perplexing questions and probably irritated in their feelings, a doctor is apt to make declarations more strongly corroborative of opinions he had formerly advanced, and as his examination advances, he may incur the change of being biased more than facts will warrant. In other words, doctors, like anyone else, are prone to letting their emotions get in the way. In addition, no one likes being wrong, and doctors might let that fear guide their conclusions more than the actual evidence. It's essentially the psychological concept known as confirmation bias, which is where we interpret information in a way that bolsters our beliefs whether or not that information actually supports them. And in forensic science, even a little confirmation bias can be a dangerous thing. It's winter 1828, the same year that T.R. Beck would make his conclusions about doctors and tunnel vision. William Logan, his young wife Elizabeth, and their three children live in Northumberland, Pennsylvania, And it's a bitingly cold day, the kind where no matter how many layers you wear or how tightly you zip up, the frigid air finds its way through seams and tears and all the way to your bones. William goes out for the day and comes home drunk. Soon after his little spree, he became ill. Not hangover ill, This was different. He had a fever, pain in his head, neck, and limbs, and soon after that, he developed a cold and a cough. (coughs) Samuel Jackson, I will not comment on the name, was summoned. He brought some firewood so the house would be warm. Then he bled Logan because, as we've discussed before, A common medical misconception was that some ailments were caused by, essentially, having too much blood. Dr. Jackson also gave William Logan some tartar emetic. This was commonly used as an emetic, as you may have guessed from the name, which is meant to cause purging, and as an expectorant. Interestingly, in high doses, it's quite dangerous and causes similar symptoms as arsenic poisoning. Dr. Jackson only uses small doses, however. One of Logan's veins became inflamed, and soon after that he fainted, 
and then he died. His death was ten days after his night on the town. Another doctor came, and together the two doctors determined, by a dissection of the inflamed vein, that the death was a natural one. There were rumors, though, and they didn't take long to cause another type of inflammation, that of public opinion. Elizabeth Logan was known to have recently purchased some arsenic to decrease the rodent population around the house. However, she wasn't the only one who had it out for the rats. William Logan himself had discussed poisoning them. There were also, of course, rumors about Elizabeth's private life. In the public mouth, her virtue began to be suspected, and it was reported that she had been intimate with a neighboring gentleman. So said Dr. Jackson. Over his objections, Logan's body was exhumed within 10 days of his death. Four physicians examined it, none of whom were the original doctor. He was shut out of the proceedings despite his extensive experience. Dr. Jackson was actually one of the town's very first doctors. Within two days, this committee of physicians declared the cause of death was arsenic poisoning. Elizabeth was charged and taken to prison. Dr. Jackson took a look at things. He knew the community and the Logans quite well, and he figured that all that gossip, and not any witnesses or true corroborating evidence, had spurred on the exhumation and examination. Elizabeth, he said, really had no motive. There was no hope of her being bettered by his death. He also looked at the committee's report and picked it apart. The committee had noted an inflamed stomach, which was supposed to be a sign of arsenic poisoning. But each doctor described it differently. Dr. Jackson wondered whether it had been inflamed at all. And if so, if that might not have been caused by Logan's enthusiasm for country whiskey. This suspicion was compounded by the fact that Logan had not been vomiting, which is one of the causes of an inflamed stomach in arsenic poisoning. In addition to that, Dr. Jackson cited a leading text on anatomy, which stated that, The appearance of the stomach alone in a question of poison is not to be depended on. This degree of uncertainty will prevent the anatomist from being called on to decide a question which may involve the life of a fellow creature. Dr. Jackson also looked at the tests the physicians had performed. There had been four in all, and three of the four depended on the observers to determine the color of the results. Jackson noted that when it came to perceiving colors, even experienced eyes may be deceived. There were other problems with the tests. One of them 
while it could detect arsenic in the stomach, might show the same results due to other matter sometimes found there, a sort of false positive. Two of the other tests, he said, were used, quote, in their most objectionable forms, end quote. The final test was the clincher. Tartar medic could produce the same results as arsenic in that test, and Jackson knew Logan had tartar medic in his system when he died, having administered it himself. In addition, despite having a good microscope at hand, the doctors did not use it. And they made no drawings of the supposedly inflamed stomach, which was destroyed. Whether that was a natural result of the testing or done in the aftermath, I'm not certain. Dr. Jackson's conclusion from this was that there was no positive proof of arsenic poisoning. And, in fact, the doctor's results would hurt even a circumstantial case as there were too many available holes to poke in their procedures and report. But, he said, it wasn't really their fault. They had relied on a text that assured the reader that two of the tests used were foolproof ways to detect arsenic. The committee presented its findings to a grand jury, and Elizabeth Logan received no testimony in her favor. However, Dr. Jackson's criticism of the physician's report seemed to do the trick. Elizabeth Logan was acquitted. The vote was 23 to 1. I think the takeaway from this little forensic tale is that tests are not always reliable, and different methods of performing them can cause variances, and people just make mistakes. As much as we want forensic science to be this foolproof thing, it can't always be simply because humans are involved. And of course, that gets to be a really thorny issue when it can determine the course of someone's life. Lucky for Elizabeth Logan that Dr. Jackson was there to point out the issues with the report and the tests, and that he had the perspective to see them. And Dr. Jackson and T.R. Beck, the physician quoted at the start of this episode, were quite ahead of their time in recognizing confirmation bias. The man who would coin the very term wouldn't even be born for nearly a century. My second forensic tale today is the story of John Bodle. The story starts on a farm in Plumstead, England. This was a village on the outskirts of London, which is now where southeast London is. The population of this village was 2200, and the year was 1833. The Bodles were a wealthy 
farming family that lived in Plumstead. George Bodle was the patriarch, and he was age 81. His wife, Anne, was 74. Everyone in town knew them, and he had even been the church warden for the past 20 years. I don't know what a church warden does. I'm just going to assume that they, in some way, take care of the church. Or maybe make sure it doesn't escape. George had worked all his life on the farm, starting as a tenant and eventually rising up to own a bunch of land around 40 acres, all told, with properties and horses and stock, he was worth between 20,000 pounds and 30,000 pounds. That's 3 to 4.6 million in today's U.S. dollars. As he got older, he decided to turn responsibilities to his son, John, known as Middle John. And Anne wasn't doing so hot on the health front. Her daughter, Elizabeth Evans, would frequently come over and stay the night in the main house to help care for her mother. Also living with them in the main house were two maids. One is Betsy, Anne's granddaughter from a previous marriage, and the other is Sophia Taylor, age 19, a maid of all work. George and Anne's daughter, Marianne, also lived nearby with her husband, Samuel Baxter, no relation that I'm aware of, on a farm of their own. Middle John, meanwhile, lived down the way in a small cottage on the farm. He and his wife of 27 years, Catherine, had two sons, 26-year-old George and 23-year-old young John. Surprisingly, First John, Older John, whatever, does not make an appearance in this story. John and Catherine had a daughter who had married and moved out. Catherine's nephew, Henry Perks, age 15, also lived with them. He worked as an errand boy for the farm, so he would spend his days at the main house. Middle John and Catherine's marriage, while long-lasting, wasn't always happy times. The local gossip had, over the course of their marriage, documented supposed infidelity as well as some violence. Middlejohn also, despite his apparent position as his father's right-hand man, seemed to live daily life more on the scale of the laborers he worked side by side with. He even collected his wages from his father with the other laborers every weekend. Young John had just returned from a stint in London where he tried to open a coffee shop, but it failed. Young John was known to have a bit of a vain streak. He was more concerned with his hair and his skin than most guys his age. There had also been a rift with his grandfather three years back when young John had been kicked off the farm and banned from working with the family 
for reasons unknown to anyone but the man who had done it, Patriarch George. And rounding out the residents of the farm, also living in the Middlejohn household was Mary Higgins, another maid of all work. And since we've mentioned it twice, a maid of all work was at the bottom of the pile as far as servants were concerned, if for some reason we're putting them in a pile. They sometimes got paid a pittance, but sometimes just worked for a roof over their head. It's likely Mary had the latter situation, as the parish had had to contribute to her wardrobe upkeep twice in the past year. Now, that was quite the cast of characters, so I'm going to give you a quick rundown to make sure you understand who everybody is and where they are. In the main house, we have George Bodle, the patriarch of the family, and his wife, Anne, Anne's granddaughter, slash maid, Betsy, and also maid of all work, Sophia Taylor. Nearby, on their own farm, are George and Anne's daughter, Marianne, and her husband, Samuel Baxter. Then, in a cottage on George's farm, is Middle John, his wife Catherine, their two adult sons, George and Young John. Why isn't it Young George? (sighs) Anyhow, Catherine's nephew, Henry Perks, and maid of all work, Mary Higgins. On the morning of November 2nd, Mary Higgins came downstairs to do her usual morning chores. And young John was already hanging out by the fireplace. This is not necessarily the norm. Young John was actually more of a late sleeper. Didn't really care about getting that worm. Young John went up to the main house to pick up some cream and asked if they needed any help getting ready for the day. And Sophia said, yes, you can fill the kettle. So he did. Then he hung it up as the fire wasn't ready yet and returned back to his father's cottage with his cream. Young John had been sort of haunting the main house recently, likely as part of a flirtation with Sophia. Coffee was made in the kettle, with George Bodle himself retrieving the day's allowance of grounds from a locked cabinet coffee being quite the commodity at the time. Only he and his wife Anne had keys to this cabinet. Served with the coffee was a piece of toast, and that was breakfast. Which disappointed me. You have a farm and you're English. Toast and coffee? Sophia actually made the coffee, And not only did no one else so much as touch the kettle, it was never out of her sight. The servant girls and Anne's daughter Elizabeth all had coffee. And in a bit of indulgence she likely regretted later, Sophia had two cups. And I don't say that because she got a little jittery. It didn't take long for the illness to strike. The servant girls were vomiting and their throats were burning. George was about the same, but with stomach cramps added into the mix. And he later complained of weak limbs, diarrhea, 
and weak vision. And I would like to have an episode where I don't have to say diarrhea. I'm ready to be done with toxicology for a little while. George had Henry Perks clean the coffee pot, and Henry went to a corner of the garden and dumped out the dregs. At the end of the day, George is still sick, and so are the servants, as well as Elizabeth Evans, who'd stayed the previous night. So the doctor is summoned at the end of the day. Dr. John Butler comes by the house, and his diagnosis is poison, probably in the coffee you all drank. He talked to the family and the servants about what they had seen and what they knew. He also gathered some physical evidence, the dregs of the coffee that Henry Perks had dumped in the garden and a sample of George's vomit. He then prescribed egg whites, likely in an attempt to induce vomiting. And that vomiting was likely in an attempt to get the poison out of the bodies. George was like, nah, I'll have some ale instead. But the servants did eat the egg whites. And the servants seemed to improve. But George Bodle's condition worsened. Another doctor was consulted two days later, and he confirmed Dr. Butler's diagnosis. On the evening of Tuesday, November 5th, three days after drinking the coffee, George Bodle died. Middle John was by his bedside. None of his family seemed terribly bothered by his death. It seemed he ran things with a too strong and sometimes violent hand. The next day, November 6th, George Bodle's will was read. Samuel Baxter, George's son-in-law, had recently helped George revise the will so there were some surprises in there. Just about everything went to Anne. Everything in the house, as well as the house itself, the orchard, the farm, and its profits. There was one caveat, though. She could not remarry. And keeping in mind that she was in ill health, so likely if she did marry, or if not, once she died, the property would be split between Middle John and Samuel Baxter. Interestingly, Middle John was prohibited by the will from selling any part of his share, but Samuel Baxter could do as he pleased with his. Marianne, Samuel's wife and George's daughter, got all the stocks and dividends, and we presume she was also allowed to sell those. This after Middle John had spent his life working the farm and helping his father. It likely stung. Of course, everyone knew George and his family, so his suspected poisoning and subsequent death kicked the rumor mill into full throttle. Young John was the star of many of the rumors. People whispered that he had disappeared as soon as everyone got sick, 
that he had bought some arsenic, that George Bodle had told Middle John just before dying about his suspicions that young John had poisoned him. And people even said that he had talked about killing both George Bodle and Middle John to make himself rich. Young John was arrested the same day the will was read, November 6th, and he faints as soon as the police constables say his name. Meanwhile, Dr. Butler grabbed a few more pieces of evidence, some of the same coffee from which the presumed poisoned coffee had been made, and the leftover coffee which a local charwoman had taken home. Forensically speaking, Dr. Butler is the dude. Someone who is not the dude is Police Constable Morris, who was the one to arrest young John. That part seemed to go well. Then, PC Morris went to search through young John's things, and he did find some important evidence. Three packets of arsenic and a small bottle containing a solution of some kind. P.C. Morris, evidence in hand, then proceeded to get absolutely obliterated at the pub. Or possibly three pubs. The arsenic he'd found was passed around among his fellow revelers, and some people even smattered it onto their faces, like makeup. The little bottle containing an unknown solution made like an irresponsible police constable and got smashed. If you know me, you know my penchant for British pub names. This is the rare excuse on this show to break that out. We know he went at least to the Red Lion, so I'm going to say, looking at Plumstead and its vicinity, that he went to the door hinge and the Green Man. While I generally have to go by present-day names, we at least know that the Red Lion still exists, and another inquest, only related to this case by the flimsiest of tangents, took place at the Green Man. And if you want to hear me read out more British pub names, check out my other podcast, Old Timey Crimey. Speaking of inquests at pubs, young John Bodle's inquest was held at the Plume of Feathers. So, after hours of drinking in likely three pubs, along with some destruction of evidence, P.C. Morris picked up young John and they were off to the pub for the inquest. The inquest and the tests on various pieces of evidence occurred simultaneously with the inquest sometimes pausing to allow time for testing. So, we'll cover the testing first, then the inquest, which was more like a trial than an inquest anyhow. Of note is the fact that, as they didn't want to send young John to prison while they awaited test results, he ended up staying at P.C. Morris's house with his father paying for his stay. And I wonder what the alcohol bill ended up being. 
There was an autopsy performed by three doctors, including Dr. Butler. Some irritation and inflammation in the digestive system were seen, as well as discoloration of the stomach tissue. In the doctor's report, they stated their opinion that no poisons but arsenic or tartar emetic would produce that level of discoloration and irritation. The official cause of death was. General disturbance of the constitution provided by the introduction of some irritating matter into the stomach. George's intestines were extracted, and everything was sent off to the Royal British Arsenal. It's said that Michael Faraday, renowned British scientist, got the assignment first, but he handed it off to his assistant. James Marsh. So Marsh took a break from his current research, which was developing a recoil brake for naval guns. Calling Marsh a chemist at this juncture feels a little off the mark. He was more involved in materials science and engineering in practice. However, this particular case would make his name a Big one in the chemistry world, but at first, not for the reasons he'd like. Foreshadowing. Marsh set to work, even though forensic chemistry really wasn't his jam just yet. He did the shield test that we've discussed in previous episodes, which would produce a garlicky scent if arsenic was present. And he did get a hint of garlicky smell, but it wasn't conclusive enough for him. He did some research and learned about the Hahnemann technique discussed in the previous episode. To recap, in 1787, Samuel Hahnemann, a German physician, found that if you take arsenic acid and bubble hydrogen sulfide into it. You get a yellow substance. So Marsh used the Hahnemann technique, and sure enough, the yellow precipitate appeared. Meanwhile, Doctor Butler went to the Bottle House to double check that he had rounded up all the pertinent evidence, and discovered that the lock on the cabinet where the coffee was stored was totally broken. On to the inquest. At which young Jean appeared, fashionably dressed. The press had, while the tests were being performed, latched on to the case, and they started to swarm the proceedings. And if trial by media were enough to send someone to the gallows, young John Bottle would have been swinging before the inquest was even over. In court. His own father is used against him in a bit of hearsay. His father, in speaking of the lamentable occurrence, has been heard to declare his opinion that it was the intention of the prisoner to make him the next victim. Marsh reported that there had been positive results for arsenic inside the kettle, but he couldn't give a quantity. The local chemist. From whom Young John had purchased the arsenic, 
testified about those transactions. Young John had stopped in twice to buy arsenic to kill the rats that were killing his fowl. The chemist reported that one arsenic packet had been significantly depleted, although we know P.C. Morris's drunken shenanigans may have had something to do with that. And apparently, in an attempt to demonstrate the need for chain-of-custody standards for evidence, P.C. Morris had even left one of the packets of arsenic behind at the chemist's. Everyone traipsed out to the Bodle farm to view the body. George Bodle's distended abdomen attracted the most attention. While they were there, they talked to Sophia Taylor, who was still recovering from the whole ordeal and unable to make it to the pub for the inquest. She related how young John had filled the kettle at her request how she went about making the coffee, and how clean the pot seemed. Then came Henry Perks with his testimony. As he was in the kitchen with Sophia for the pertinent events, his recounting was apparently very similar to hers, with the exception that he mentioned this was the first time he'd ever seen young John fill the kettle. Then came a break, during which the aforementioned tests were performed. Mary Higgins, Middle John's maid, had been sent to the poorhouse for a bit to prevent any collusion with other witnesses. But she took the stand at last as the inquest resumed. She reported that Little John had stated he'd have no problem poisoning someone and that he'd wished his own grandfather dead, as well as his father. Young John's representation pulled out the oldest trick in the book, slut-shaming as a means of diminishing her reliability as a witness. They tried to associate her sexually and romantically with both Middle John and Young John, and, of course, insinuated that young John had rejected her. This, of course, was designed to give the jury a motive for her supposed lying. Young John's mother also testified that Mary Higgins' statement was made up, and Middle John, too, cast aspersions on her, calling her a false wench. There were some more statements from other witnesses, including a return of Sophia Taylor, but the witness who got everyone talking was Middle John, who was asked to recount his father's deathbed conversation. I asked him if he had any suspicion as to who it was. He said he was satisfied it was not me who did the deed, but he was well convinced who did it. It was, he said, your son John, and I am well convinced he did it. Middle John gives other testimony, but contradicts himself a lot. The coroner even calls him on it repeatedly. Despite young John taking the stand and insisting that he hadn't put anything in the kettle, 
and that the arsenic wasn't even for rats, but to clear up a case of scabies, the jury came back with a charge of willful murder after deliberating for a half hour. Young John is off to jail. No more chillin' at P.C. Morris's house, I guess. Which is probably for the best, as P.C. Morris was suspended from duty a few weeks later, then dismissed for drunkenness and incompetence. Hey, look at that. Accountability. Now on to the trial, which occurred four weeks after the inquest in December. Young John is perhaps a little more anxious this time. He's reportedly dressed, quote, very genteelly, end quote, and in deep mourning colors. The trial only takes two days, which makes it shorter than the inquest. Middle John sort of recants his testimony from the inquest. And then young John takes the stand and gets his vengeance for his father's testimony by making the case that his father was the most likely suspect. He gave a very, very long speech in which he presented all of his evidence to this effect, which included his father's testimony at the inquest. What father but a guilty one would point the finger at his own son, as well as the broken lock on the coffee cupboard? Marsh testified, as to the tests he'd performed and the yellow precipitate. But one problem with this test was that the results deteriorated, and there was enough time between the tests he performed and his testimony at the trial that he had nothing physical to show the jury. It's not clear to me whether he knew about the arsenic mirror test we've discussed in previous episodes, which had been developed some 46 years prior and would have given him actual physical results to display. But he would come to know about it eventually, as we'll find out. At the trial, he struggled to explain the test to the jury without any physical demonstration, and they didn't understand how it was performed, nor did they believe the results. Not only that, but he found no arsenic in George Bodle's stomach or vomit, although he found some traces in the sample of coffee. Again, we're uncertain what tests he used and whether they would have been sensitive enough to perceive any small quantities of arsenic or whether he actually had a method of testing the stomach tissue, like the test designed by Valentin Rose in 1806. The judge went to give his summary of the case to the jury, but they interrupted him because they didn't need to hear it. They knew their verdict already. Without even any real deliberation, so far as I can tell, young John Bodle was found not guilty. Marsh was like, okay. Now I'm in this. I'm going to make a testing process that gives you physical results that won't degrade over time. 
He takes the work of men who came before him and combines that work. There's the Scheele test, which used zinc combined with arsenic to produce a gas smelling of garlic. And then he adds Metzger's method, which heats a substance containing arsenic with a cold plate above it to form a metallic arsenic deposit, the aforementioned arsenic mirror. Marsh not only used the zinc and the heat, he designed a whole apparatus, combining his engineering experience with his determination to not let this happen again. The apparatus consisted of a glass bottle, a hollow glass rod, and a U-shaped glass tube, either body fluid, such as stomach contents, or a tissue sample could be tested. He combined zinc, an acid, and the testing material. When he added material containing arsenic, it combined with the hydrogen to form arsine gas. The arsine gas then oxidized, and the result would be a stain on a porcelain or glass surface. If the testing material contained arsenic, the stain would be dark brown. If the testing material contained antimony, which is part of the chemical composition of tartar emetic, the stain would be black. These are a little too close in color, but it was eventually discovered that you could determine whether it was antimony by adding some sodium hypochlorite to the stain. If it dissolved, you had antimony. And if the material contained neither poison, no stain would be produced. As you can imagine, having this tangible evidence went over much better with juries. And Marsh's test not only detected arsenic, but measured the quantity of it. It could detect as little as one-fiftieth milligram of arsenic. It was also usable on cadavers that had been long dead. Marsh published a report of the test in the Edinburgh Philosophical Journal in 1836. Early on, it wasn't entirely reliable, but later modifications helped that somewhat. One issue is that critics worried arsenic that made a test turn positive could have come from the materials used to test the earth from which the body was exhumed or just normal arsenic levels in the body, in addition to arsenic used in the container, which was used to boil the cadaver for testing, and arsenic in paint on wood used to transport bodies. In essence, in every step from transporting the body to putting it into the earth to taking it out of the earth, there was arsenic involved every step of the way. But, of course, there are issues with the other tests. The yellow precipitate in the Hahnemann test could come from a number of other materials that might be present. And that garlicky smell is not really reliable. What if somebody just had spaghetti for lunch? Oh, and John Bodle? He left the village not long after the trial. 
about 11 years later, a man named James Smythe is charged with extortion in London. Before he can get to trial, though, it's discovered that he's operating under a pseudonym. He's really young John Bodle. And once part of the truth has spilled out, he decides to knock the pitcher over altogether. He confesses that, yes, he did in fact murder his grandfather. I can only imagine James Marsh's reaction. I bet there were so many I told you so's. I bet James Marsh was like the I told you so king after he found that out. I know I would be. I would probably answer I told you so to every single question put to me. So, Christy, how'd you sleep? I told you so! So, Christy, what do you want for dinner? I told you so! So, Christy, what do we say when we're completely vindicated 11 years after the fact? I told you so! Of course, young John Bodle would see no consequences for this, as he couldn't be tried twice for the same crime. And even if they were to try, all he'd have to do is recant his confession. So, after being found guilty of extortion, He's sent to Australia. It appears he continued under the name James Smythe, and in 1852, an Australian newspaper advertises a two-pound reward for James Smythe, escaped prisoner. In Ballarat, Victoria, there's a drunken disorderly fine against a James Smythe in 1866, and a James Smythe accused of stealing mailbags in the same area in 1871. However, in said paper, there's also a James Smythe who owns a pub in the area, a James Smythe who runs a general store, and a James Smythe whose eldest son gets married. There's also a James Smythe of Hamilton, Australia, who dies in 1884. So, who knows? Young John Bodle could be any, all, or none of those James Smythes. And as for Marsh, well, we'll see more of his test in a few episodes when it gets its first big public trial in France. And I bet you all can't wait for the accent. That has been my show for today. Thank you so much for listening. I so appreciate you coming for this ride with me every week. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. Come see me on social media. I'm going to put up some pictures and drawings of the Marsh Test, and we got all kinds of fun stuff for this week. I am Detectives by the Decade on Facebook and Insta, and just by the Decade on Twitter. You can also email me at Detectives by the Decade at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, come check out my other podcast, Old Timey Crimey, if you want to listen to myself and Scott, whose voice you heard, and our co-host Amber say some filthy words and talk about historical crime. 
Detectives by the Decade is written and produced by me, Christy Baxter. Voice acting by the outstanding Scott Mort. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. See you next week. My sources for this episode are David S. Caudill, Stories About Science and Law, Literary and Historical Images of Acquired Expertise. Also David S. Caudill, Prefiguring the Arsenic Wars on ScienceHistory.org. Also David S. Caudill, Arsenic and Old Chemistry, Images of Mad Alchemists, Experts Attacking Experts, and the Crisis in Forensic Science. Irrefutable Evidence, Adventures in the History of Forensic Science by Michael Curland. Dr. Stephanie S. Dillon, Chemistry and Crime, A Brief History. Ben on the Dark Histories podcast. An article on Case Western Reserve University. The book Silent Witnesses, The Often Gruesome but Always Fascinating History of Forensic Science by Nigel McCreary. Sandra Hempel, The Inheritor's Powder, A Tale of Arsenic, Murder, and the New Forensic Science. And James Morton, Justice Denied, Extraordinary Miscarriages of Justice. Told you so.